One day I found a plagiarized uh, PhD thesis. So a thesis that had the introduction had plagiarized text. And just by accident, I flipped through the rest of the thesis uh, PDF and found two duplicated blots that looked identical, except one of the blots had been mirrored. So it was like an, in, a mirror image. And I recognized that blot. It had a little dot on it that I recognized. It was very specific. And I thought in combination with the plagiarism in the introduction, I immediately suspected that this was done intentionally. Welcome to the 42nd episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. Today, we have a very exciting new episode. We're going to talk about fraud in science, and more specifically, image tampering. And to get to the bottom of this, we have a very special guest who is an expert in, the, in this subject, namely Elizabeth Dick. Hello. <laughs> so let's start. We're very excited to have you here. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, yeah, no, ex excited to hear questions. Yeah. It's also nice to to have a Dutch person for a change, <laughs> even though you're <laughs> at the other side of the world, basically. But uh... hallo allemaal, ik spreek nog steeds Nederlands. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, before we get into the main topic of this episode, we always like to ask our guests to introduce themselves because it's always so telling what they want us to know about them, of course. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Where do you come from, live now, any interesting hobbies that you have or oh. anything else that you like? <laughs> so my name is Elizabeth Bick. I um, was born and raised in the Netherlands, uh, born in Gouda and uh, did my PhD in Utrecht, Utrecht University. Mm -hmm. uh, but I actually worked at the Dutch Institute, National Institute of Health, RIVM. That's where I did my ah. PhD on, on Vibrio cholera. So I'm a microbiologist. I also worked at the St. Antonius Ziekenhuis in Nieuwegein. And then I moved to the US. I, uh, that was about 20 years ago. And I worked 15 years of those 20 years at Stanford as a staff scientist, first as a postdoc and then later as a staff scientist uh, on the microbiome of humans and dolphins. Hmm? And so oh. <laughs> Yes, and then we can talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then while I was working there, I got interested in uh, research integrity. Uh, we can talk about that later. But uh, I, now I sort of, I worked also two years in biotech and I quit my job uh, in 2019. And so I'm not employed. I don't have a boss, lovely. And uh, I am a consultant specializing in image duplications in scientific papers. And my hobbies, uh, well, I collect turtles, so oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> I have behind me, you cannot see that in the podcast, but I have behind me uh, yeah, a collection of around 2,000 turtles. Wow. Uh, li little ones, turtles, tortoises, made of wood, of stone, clay, porcelain, whatever. Uh, no real ones. Uh, <laughs> and I like to garden. Uh, I like to work in the backyard, uh, especially like big work, uh, like uh, putting in sprinklers, repairing sprinklers. I... Here in California, where we live, uh, we uh, we need in the summer we don't get any rain, so we need sprinklers. And so I've I've learned how to repair and put in new sprinklers. Mm. Very I, useful skill. I already have two questions uh, based on what you just oh. said. <laughs> so, oh well, we won't be bored here. <laughs> so first off, why why the microbiome of dolphins? And second off, is there a uh, logic to to the the collecting of tortoises or turtles? Uh, <laughs> what's the well, we could start with that. <laughs> so when I, when when I was in in elementary school, I don't know, I was like eight years, ten mm -hmm. years old, whatever. 
and and all the girls in my class started to collect something mm. that was mm. you know that was the thing back then and so one person collected um rabbits or dogs or and then you know like porcelain little statues mm. miniatures of of those animals so uh, my best friend and i um we're also enthusiastic about collecting something, but we had to come up with what are we going to collect? You know, this is an important life choice. <laughs> yes. And But we also thought, well, you know, cats and dogs and, and bunnies, those are way too, too easy. easy. Yeah. You can find them everywhere. And back then, turtles. And uh, so I chose turtles because my, my parents had a tortoise in the backyard, uh, uh, three ones actually. And mm -hmm. um, so I collected, I, I decided to collect turtles and tortoises. And uh, my my best friend collected uh, chose hedgehogs, mm. eagles. Ah, yes. So there was there was uh, you know we wanted to make it really hard on ourselves. And <laughs> then you couldn't find a lot of turtles. That wasn't Especially very popular. Now now they're much easier to find. But so uh, and the funny thing is that that all the other girls quickly stopped doing that after a year or so. But then we kept on going. So <laughs> commitment. <laughs> We're now in our fifties, and we still have uh, our hedgehogs, and I have my turtles. Uh, I'm I'm not a you know I don't collect them uh, actively anymore. But if somebody gives me a turtle, I it's going to get a good home in my mm. in my uh, cabinet Collection. behind me. Yes. Oh wow, amazing! And the other question yes. was about why the microbiome of dolphins. Yes. So I worked in uh, at Stanford. We worked on the microbiome of humans. That was you know mm. we wanted to know which bacteria live inside our bodies. Um, we started with the, the guts or stool samples, poop samples. Uh, we also did uh, oral samples in our mouth and then gastric samples. So we, we, I published this paper on gastric, the gastric microbiome, uh, one of the first papers on that topic. And then we were contacted by the U.S. Navy, mm. who manages a group of dolphins in San Diego uh, that are trained to find underwater objects. This is no secret information. This is all public. But these animals were trained sort of similar to sniffing dogs. They were trained to find to because they can make deep dives, they can they have a sonar system, they can find underwater objects. They were trained to find things like sea mines and and then uh, uh, tell the divers up, you know, up in the boat that there was an underwater object that needed to be deactivated, for example. So the the group of researchers who worked with these dolphins were very interested in in what we were doing with humans. And so they asked, can you do that with dolphins too? And we're like, sure, just send us the samples. We'll, you know, we we extract the DNA and we do the sequencing. It doesn't really matter what type of samples it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that. And I one time I actually got to visit the dolphins, but uh, I, I didn't sample themselves. That was all done by trained veterinarians. And we got lots of samples from blow, blow holes and skin <laughs> and, and mouth and... Um, Poop sample. Well, poop samples is hard because you cannot really swim around the dolphin and wait until it poops. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but you can you can uh, carefully uh, sample its uh, basically its butt, mm. you know, the rectal hole. So we got lots of samples. We also got samples of the fish they were eating and of seawater. So it was a very exciting project, and we got that published a couple of years ago. Oh, oh nice! A lot of fun, also. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I was actually also wondering, uh, you're obviously uh, an expert in finding papers with images that have been manipulated in some way or tampered in some way. And mm -hmm. from what I've been able to tell as well, that mm -hmm. your work has already led to over 900 uh, retractions as well as uh, over 900 corrections, which is obviously amazing and great scientific work that contributes to the scientific community. 
But could you also tell us and our, maybe our listeners what got you started with this and how has it evolved over the years a little bit? Yeah, I, uh, so I was still working at Stanford uh, hmm. in 2013. I got interested in, in plagiarism. Somebody, I, and I forgot exactly what it was that got me interested, but I just decided, hey, did somebody actually sometimes plagiarize my work? So hmm. I typed in a sentence from a paper I had written, a review article on the microbiome. And I typed in that sentence or like a string of words from that sentence between quotes in Google Scholar, not expecting to find anything but uh, other than my own paper. Uh, but I found another hit. I found uh, actually two hits, oh. uh, an in-tech open um, article that was sort of these online books. Um, and, and that had stolen my sentence, basically a whole paragraph. Mm. And it had stolen sentences from other papers as well. And it, it also, they also, these researchers also published a paper with my sentence. So there were two hits that were not my own paper. And so I got so mad. Yeah. <laughs> like, these people stole my sentence. Come on. Yeah. Um, and I, I started looking into plagiarized articles and I did that for a year, um, long story. But one day I found a plagiarized uh, PhD thesis. So a thesis mm -hmm. that had the introduction had plagiarized text. And just by accident, I flipped through the rest of the thesis uh, PDF and found two duplicated blots that looked identical, except one of the blots had been mirrored, mm. mirrored. So it was like an, in a mirror image. And I recognized that blot. It had a little dot on it that I recognized. It was very specific. And, and I thought in combination with the plagiarism in the introduction, I immediately suspected that this was done intentionally. Mm. And uh, I... These papers had been published, the, the PhD thesis chapters had been published, and there were several examples of duplicated images. Mm -hmm. So I reported these papers, and I also wanted to know how often does this happen? These images have been published in papers. Do we often, more often see duplications either within or across papers uh, of images? And, and, or do we even see image duplications within a photo, which is even worse? Mm -hmm. So I started to, to, be interested in that. And I just opened a bunch of papers on my desktop that had the word Western blot in it because the image I had found was a Western blot. And I started finding some of these examples and I started doing that. In the end, I screened 20,000 papers and found 800 papers with duplicated images. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this was a hobby project. I was still working full-time at Stanford, so it wasn't... Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't my full-time job. It mm. was, it, I did this in the evenings and, and weekends. I'm impressed with that amount of commitment <laughs> yes. and work. Just 20, <laughs> when I hear that amount of like, I can, re I can register the number, but it, I can't imagine the amount of papers that actually is when you see it like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. But, but I only looked at the images, so I didn't read the papers. Mm. Uh, I, I just scanned images and some papers... If you so, what I did is I screened, I scanned for the word Western blots. Mm -hmm. uh, started with plus one papers because they're they were easy to find at home. They're open access, mm -hmm. um, so I did, you know you you can easily open them. And and some of these papers only have one or two photos, so you're you're very quickly done reading. You don't read them. I just look at the images. So mm -hmm. some some of them would take less than a minute once you have them open. Mm -hmm. The opening of the PDFs actually <laughs> took more time sometimes than the actual scanning and back then you mostly looked within one paper right you didn't go looking for all yes. the other papers yet it's hard to really know if an image has been used 
in other papers just yeah. using your eyes. There's no way a human can can remember all images ever published. Yeah. And at that time, I was still using my eyes. So I limited myself to duplications within a paper for my initial screen because I wanted to get that published. So I wanted to do it in a in a in a way that other people could repeat mm -hmm. it, a reproducible way. I wanted to really write down what I did. So I screened for Western blot. Uh, that word between quotes I screened um, if a paper did not contain an image I didn't look at it I didn't count it and uh, it had to have a duplication within that paper mm. and then you already found so many that's crazy 800 yes 4% mm. yeah. did you know when you started it that you wanted to maybe publish it whatever the results may, may might end up being or did you figure out okay I have 200 potential papers already mm -hmm. maybe let's systematize this a little bit to get it published? I, uh, not the first day, I just thought, hey, does this happen more often? Mm -hmm. But I guess, I don't know, maybe I've been a scientist too long. <laughs> I, I thought, well, we need to, this is, this is, uh, it's disturbing mm -hmm. that this happened, that this passes through peer review. Let's, and I think within a couple of days of, of scanning papers, you know, at night, I, I thought I should do this in a way that is reproducible and, mm. and so I can publish it. So I should keep track of how many papers I've scanned mm. and how many papers I've found. And I should also not publish this by myself because there's no way I can publish this by myself. Nobody's mm. going to believe me that I found <laughs> these duplications. And um, so I, I realized I need to have two co-authors who, who, um, who have to approve of the duplications that I found. So I... Mm found um, a team of two persons uh, active in microbiology and also editors-in-chief of ASM, American Society for Microbiology Journals, Arturo Casadeval and Farrick Fang. They were both uh, professors and they were both editors-in-chief of journals. So they were very experienced and they had published about retractions mm. and about they were both working in microbiology, my home field. And so they seemed to be a very logical couple to, to mm. try to get interested in my work. And at first they were like, uh, we're not sure <laughs> you see these things. Uh, we don't see it really. But I think gradually I could convince them that what I was seeing were really duplications and, and you know, sometimes just honest errors. It can happen, but, but some of them looked like they were intentionally done. And so uh, after we had some hefty discussions, <laughs> mm. uh, but they, we agreed that all the things that I found they had to both agree with. And if one of them did not agree or both of them did not agree that it was a duplication, then I had to toss it out. I'm still convinced I was right in some of these cases, but this was the agreement <laughs> that we uh, we came up with. And so the, for the 800 papers that we found, we agreed with all three of us that these were duplications, mm. inappropriate duplications. So not duplications that were quite all right, but duplications where the same image or part of the same image had been used to represent two different experiments. Yeah, mm. or completely different condition or like... Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and now since then, you have also started using computer programs, I think, right? To to analyze more quickly. Uh, so how has it evolved uh, since since that you started with this paper? So in that, the, the paper that I published in 2016, where I mm. scanned those 20,000 papers, that was all done by eye. There was, uh, of course, I used the computer to, to open the, the files and, and, and to mark them with colored boxes where the duplications were. But I found them by, by just looking yes. at them myself. Mm -hmm. uh, in a couple of years ago, and I 
don't quite, I would say about two, two years ago, I started using software. So I'm using Image Twin. It's a program that is uh, using AI, artificial intelligence. <laughs> I have no idea how it works, but it does find duplications. <laughs> and it's quite good in finding duplications in those panels where you have lots of, um, let's say, microscopy photos of tissues mm. or cells. Mm -hmm. It's amazingly good. And it finds in, in, in those types of images, it finds uh, tiny overlaps. It finds rotational overlaps or mirrored overlaps as well. And it also has a database of some images of the public PubMed Central, so open access um, images. And occasionally it will find an overlap with another paper. So, But it also has a lot of false positives. So a lot of these, I um, I don't think there's a duplication, especially in Western blots. It's just not very good in those. Mm. Mm. And so I still need to look at, scan them, all these papers myself, but it helps me. It's it's so quick. Like you just dump in a PDF and within seconds, it says, oh, there's a duplication there and there's a duplication there. But I still need to check it. You mm. cannot blindly rely on the software, but it, it's very helpful and uh I bet it, if I would scan those 20,000 papers again, which I'm not going to do, <laughs> it would find more duplications than I would ever find myself. Yeah. So you're primarily using it now as a sort of a screening tool to sort of Help. pinpoint and, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't use, I use it on complex papers with lots of images. Mm -hmm. And I use it, if, if there's just one image, I'll just look at it myself. But if it has um, either lots of different Western blots or it has um, a lot of, um, one of those panels with five, uh, you know, five rows and, and and ten columns or so with with images. Then I use it for that. So so with these more complex papers, I will uh, I will just drag the PDF into the software and it will uh, look at the duplications. But sometimes it costs me more time because it flags a lot of false positives. So mm. you have to sort of click through them. Like okay, no, these are fine. These are fine. These are fine. <laughs> But then, hey, it, it did find a duplication. And so it's uh, it's helpful. It has definitely found a lot more than I would find myself. But the false positives are, in a way, also slowing me down. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, this is new software. It's in development. I'm sure it will get better. And uh, in the end, of course, software is going to be able to screen much more than a human can. Yeah, well, hopefully also it could be checked before papers get published. In, in the future, it would be so nice exactly. if it would be possible, right? Um, so you published your 4% of papers that you found with a duplication in 2016. Do you think it's the same amount these days? Do you think it's even more? How how do you feel about it now that you have been doing this for a while? Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. So I'm, I think I'm only catching the tip of the iceberg because I, again, I did this screen by eye, so I probably have missed a lot. And if it was a duplication, uh, a reuse of an image from another paper, I would not have found that. So um, the 4% um, was papers that had duplicated images that were inappropriate duplications. Um, we estimated about half of those, so 2% of, of these papers that are screened, uh, were done intentionally, where, of course, where, for example, an image was rotated or mirrored or um, where an image had duplicated elements like cells or blood bands within the same photo. So those are, you know, very likely to have been done intentionally. So our estimate initially was that 2% of the papers that are screened, so those were only papers that contained photos, yeah. those papers um, contained intentionally misleading data. So, uh, and then we were trying to say, does that mean that 2% of all papers contains 
misconduct. And the number is probably much higher. Like I said, I, I only catch the tip of the iceberg. I mm -hmm. only catch things in images. But manipulation in, in things like, like um, line graphs, bar graphs, ordination plot, heat maps, I have no idea you know, if that, yeah. that has been tampered mm -hmm. with. It's much harder to tell. So sorry for this very long answer to your question. <laughs> so your question is, um, you know, is, is this getting worse or, or, or better? I think on one hand, since our paper got published, I think a lot of people realize, oh, wait, we should not be doing this because Elizabeth Vick is going to catch us. <laughs> it leaves, it leaves uh, something that she can find, right? Like we should do, we should fraud better. So I, <laughs> I do think we, on one hand, I'm sure there's, there's still a lot of this going on. People are just bad at Photoshopping or moving the, mm. the sample under the microscope a little bit more. So there's no overlap for me to find. But on the other hand, I, I do think there's, there's a huge increase in what we call paper mills, which are completely fake papers, um, not necessarily with images, but that are papers that are uh, either plagiarized of other papers or completely making fake data using AI or, or just a human uh, based on a template. And so we see a large influx of these, what we believe are fake papers. And these papers are very similar and they, they leave traces that they're fake and which are hard to find, but there are several people working on these paper mills. And we, I think there's thousands of these papers, um, you know, polluting basically the scientific literature. And I think that's a very recent development and it's driven by certain countries that have very strict requirements for scientists to publish their results. So it's, um, mm. uh, in, for example, in China, there's a requirement to publish a scientific paper in order to get either a position at a clinical mm. hospital for a medical doctor or to get a promotion. And these medical doctors are not necessarily interested in research. So they'll just buy a paper. They see, they see advertisements on social media in China where people, paper mills, advertise their services and, mm. and these Medical doctors are desperate to have a paper. They don't have time to write a paper, but they just want to invest in their in their career. And so they will buy a paper, uh, which is a completely fake paper. And these papers are, are, there's a great influx of these papers in scientific literature. So I think fraud in general is on the rise based on increased pressure to publish mm. and sometimes impossible requirements for people to publish. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. I also think it's very funny that you say that they are frauding better because I have <laughs> been following you on Twitter, of course, and I sometimes see these images where you can literally see still the edges of where they copy exactly. and pasted it in. And I'm like, why, why are you doing it so badly? <laughs> put some effort. Well, <laughs> well, you know, the people who did put in effort, I'm not able to find them. I yeah. really only catch the dumb fraudsters. <laughs> <laughs> The ones who leave traces, yes. Ah, but that's even more worrying, right? To, to think, yeah. It is, yes, mm. yes. Because most scientists are smart, right? Like we agree that that's scientists idea. are, yeah. in general, <laughs> pretty smart people. So yeah. I think a lot of people are, uh, you know, there's many ways to fraud that do not leave any traces. Mm -hmm. Not going to give anybody any ideas. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you Photoshop your image and you publish that, that leaves traces for others to find. Mm. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in our AI tools. 
Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Yeah, so when you find a case of image fraud, what 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 does the follow-up steps look like? What what can you do from then? And do you think journals and institutes are taking it serious or serious enough? Oh, no, they don't take <laughs> it serious enough. <laughs> Uh, so what you're supposed to do is write to the editor-in-chief of the journal in which it was published. Mm. So you, um, well, first you have to hunt down who the editor-in-chief is of the journal. Mm. Then you have to find their email address. And they sometimes hide that. I, I, I'm mm. trying to think if that's on purpose or not. <laughs> but anyway, once you have found the editor-in-chief, you can write to the journal. And sometimes journals also have contact addresses. It depends a little bit on the publisher. Mm. So then you are uh, you can write to the editor in chief and saying I have a concern about this and this paper and I think that figure two A looks like figure three B. Uh, here's a, a little PDF with the illustration, and then you hope, of course, that the uh, the editor will then contact the author. I would not recommend contacting the author yourself. That usually doesn't you know result in a fruitful discussion, <laughs> but uh, do it through the editor. Then the author is supposed to respond. There's a co corresponding uh, email, uh, corresponding author email on most author, uh, most papers. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, they get a chance to prove that the allegations were wrong by perhaps sending in the original blot or high, higher resolution photo or so. And then uh, what could follow is either a correction if the error, if there was an error. And the author was able to prove that it was an error, like, oh, sorry, yes, we did upload the wrong photo. Here's the right one. Or the, author, the paper can get retracted or receive an expression of concern if the editor is not happy with the author's reply. Mm -hmm. Now, this is all the ideal case. There's many things that can go wrong here. Mm -hmm. For example, the in my experience, a lot of editors don't even reply when I send my concerns to them. And uh, then they might contact the authors, but the authors are not responding. And this is sort of where it all, the whole flow chart of what everybody should do ends and mm. doesn't re lead to a re resolution. Because authors, of course, move to a different institution, their email address doesn't work, or they might just not feel like answering this, this somewhat inconvenient question. Mm -hmm. And so they might not uh, answer on purpose. It's hard to tell the difference. Um, and then sometimes 
authors will send in a new photoshopped image or <laughs> something better and the editor might believe that this is uh, you know and, and and but yeah there's many reasons that can go wrong so in my experience this initial set where i scanned 20,000 papers and i found 800 papers with problems confirmed by two other people those 800 papers i reported all of them to the editor in chief in 2015 then i waited 5 years i sent some reminders like hey my paper, uh, did you look at my, you know, remember my email? I'm still here. Did you look at it? And five years later, two thirds of those 800 papers had not been acted upon. Mm -hmm. No correction, no retraction, no expression of concern. Nothing happened, at least from my point of view. I don't know what the editors did. So only one third uh, had been uh, received a correction or a retraction. And now we're, you know, two, three years later, uh, that number is still on the rise. There's still a couple of papers that are from that set that are getting either retracted or corrected, but the number is still below 50%. So more than half of the papers, even after waiting seven years, are not acted upon. And, and that's just a very sad number. It seems that there is an inability or uh, lack of willingness of editors to respond to these allegations. Do you feel it's better in certain journals than in others? Do certain journals respond better than others? And is there an impact factor difference? Or <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to tell because I think the numbers that I have per, uh, per paper, uh, per journal, are probably too low to do any real mm. statistics on it. I feel that journals in general do bad across the board. All journals do bad. But in some cases, they, uh, there are journals that respond really fast, quickly in certain papers, but then fail to respond to other papers. So hmm. it doesn't seem to be completely tied to a journal or impact factor, um, but it seems to be more tied perhaps to the editor handling this, these allegations or the, um, the age of the paper. Uh, if a paper is very old, of course, you know, who can find the authors um, and who can find the original plots. That's probably all gone. And perhaps there might be conflicts of interest with certain papers. So I can imagine that an editor is maybe very willing to retract a paper from an author they have never worked with and they don't know personally, but they might be not so willing to work on a paper if the author is a is their best buddy or they, they mm. hung out with them at a conference, you know, drank a beer together and tapped on each other's back and, and liked each other professionally. And, and then, you know, if somebody is um, then making some, raising some concerns about their paper, then maybe the editor thinks, well, but that was a nice guy or a nice gal. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, bring them into trouble. So I think there's also conflicts of interest, but no, no, no big correlation between impact factor and responses. There was a correlation actually between the, percentage of problems in these journals and uh, and their impact factor so the higher the impact factor in general the lower the amount of problems but it could just mean that they're better fraudsters in those journals <laughs> the authors are you also, know, also the also authors are yeah. smarter maybe in yeah who <laughs> submit their papers to a high impact journals. <laughs> Okay, now we also know that you sometimes investigate a whole line of papers from a specific author or even from a group uh, what do you think are the reasons for these serious offenders to, to do this? Well, I, I imagine that um, some 
some people are just fraudsters and mm. they, you know, you fraud once and you get away with it. I think it becomes easier to fraud again. And this is exactly what uh, Diederik Stapel wrote in his book. So um, I think a lot of people might be familiar with this case. He was a professor at Tilburg University. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked in psychology. And it was um, after several rounds of whistleblowers, it, it came out that he had completely fabricated his data. And he has now 50, 50, over, over 50 papers retracted. <laughs> and he admitted that he... He made up this data, like I'm not making any false accusations here. And he wrote a book about it, why he did it. And in his book, he wrote, well, you know, the first time you do, you, you fake, you, you fabricate data. You, you, you know, he made just some numbers up in the spreadsheet and, and made some graphs and, 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 you know, convincing looking results. Mm -hmm. The first time he was, you know, sweating and like, oh, this, somebody's going to find out. Like, I hope nobody finds out. But then it got published and he got on television and he could talk about his work. Everybody was cheering and he suddenly was famous. And he said the second time it just becomes easier. Just keep on doing it because you're, you know, the, I think success is addictive. And these people, there's, there's a very low chance of being caught. He, he was got, caught. But I think in general, the, the chance of getting caught if you are doing fraud in science are very low. And if you get caught, the repercussions are even lower. There's, there seems to be little consequences for anyone's career when they do it, especially when they're a senior researcher. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of a senior researcher indeed, like getting, except for him, of course, right. <laughs> getting kicked out. Very few, very few. I do know In some, so, some stories about postdocs and things like that who are kicked out of their career, of course, but for like real PIs, no, indeed, no. So now it's also not necessarily the case that it's always the, the first author that you investigate, I guess, but sometimes also the last. What do you mm -hmm. think happens in these groups that lead to sort of image duplication or uh, fraud? What's the sort of group dynamic you think that leads to that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And I, I think it's, I sort of picture a bully as a group leader, a, uh, you know, a demanding professor who who does not want to hear that he or she is wrong. And so they have a very strict hypothesis and they demand that all the experiments will fit their hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So if a, a junior person in their group, a postdoc or a graduate student comes to this professor with their results and, and the professor thinks, well, that's not what I had expected. They, the professor might actually say something to the grad student like, I had not expected these results. Go back and give me the results that fit my hypothesis. You know, maybe not mm. using those exact <laughs> words, but almost, and, and, and maybe threatening to fire them. Mm. And uh, maybe this is not super important in Europe, where I think in most countries, people are a little bit more protected mm. um, in their, you know, employment. But in the US, if, if you get fired uh, and you are on a visa, yeah. So you are a foreign student working in the U.S. and you get fired by your boss. That means that your visa immediately ends. Your visa is dependent on your sponsor. I mean, it's all like the rules there in the U.S. And, and so that means that if you get fired, you have to pack up your stuff and go back to your country within a week or so, like a very short period. So if you're threatened to be fired and you're a foreign student or foreign postdoc or foreign grad student, so you 
on a visa, you would be scared to shit, you know, mm. to 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 get fired. And so you would be very willing to please the professor and then maybe Photoshop or do some other fraud to make the results look uh, the way the professor wants it. So I'm I'm sort of always picturing this this image, and I think it's a very realistic image, uh, a realistic situation, uh, because professors have a lot of power. There's so much hierarchy in academia. We're very dependent when we're earlier in our career on that letter of recommendation or a positive uh, note by the professor to get uh, to get into our next step of our career or that paper that we need in order to leave the lab. So. Mm-hmm. Um, bullying, nasty, not mentoring, but but you know, ruling by fear type of professors would be uh, a, sort of a, a petri dish for fraud, not fraud done by the professor themselves. So mm-hmm. they can wash their hands, like oh, we're we're clean, we, we didn't do anything. Uh, and and you see these string of papers being retracted, um, or st- just a string of papers with image problems, all by different first authors, but all with the same last author. And mm. I feel that's that's one of those situations where, yes, maybe the person who did the photoshopping was the the first author, the junior scientist, mm-hmm. mostly in biology. But it's it's in in the end, it's the senior author who's ultimately re- responsible for the integrity of the data and the mentoring of that lab. And so, it's. Uh, I feel that those persons, the senior persons, need to be held responsible, uh, because when you know somebody is your boss and tells you what to do and threatens to fire you if you don't do it, you know you cannot really blame the junior person for doing something wrong. Uh, you should blame the the senior person. Hmm. It's also crazy that sometimes you actually need multiple people to actually say something before it's taken seriously. Also, in like those cases. Even yes, if, we, if one person would come forward, it's not enough. <laughs> no, absolutely. And and that is uh, like in the case of Diederik Stapel, it took two groups of whistleblowers to finally uh, get the concerns be taken seriously. So the first group was not believed. They were sort of sent away with saying like, the university said, we didn't find anything wrong. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it was a couple of years later that a new group of, of graduate students or people working in his lab uh, got the courage to, to raise the concerns again. And then they were believed. And it turned out they were right. And the first group was also right. So uh, and we we've seen a similar situation in the case of Jan Hendrik Schön, who was a physicist at Bell Labs in the U.S., and he uh, fabricated a lot of his results. Uh, he had fantastic results. They looked beautiful, everybody. And he p- published in Nature and Science and like top of the line uh, journals. Mm-hmm. And several rounds of people came up and went to his his bosses and said, we, we think these results are way too beautiful. We never see this guy work in the lab. Like, <laughs> how can he even have obtained these measurements? And And they were not believed. It took... I think, I don't know how many, I read the book, Plastic Fantastic, can recommend that if you want to read about uh, the long road to get a person nailed for misconduct. Um, Plastic Fantastic is is a book that is very good to read. And But yeah, it, it shows you how many times whistleblowers are not believed initially. Yeah, crazy. Well, it should be so important in science to check it, at least. Mm-hmm. You yeah. would think that reproducibility would be top of... Top concern. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would think. No. But universities more and more, or companies, 
are very concerned about about bringing in money mm. and i feel that universities are more and more turning into these factories of of raking in money and you know worrying a little bit about their reputation but not too much about the quality of science as long as it sells and so people who professors or group leaders who bring in lots of grant money are almost protected against being investigated because those are what we call in the US the rainmakers they bring in the money for the universities and and if a if a you know a junior researcher comes up and saying i believe that professor x is you know doing nasty fraudulent things the university uh, might just think well we don't really want to investigate professor x because they bring in so much money so uh, they almost have they almost give immunity to to these people and and you know we've seen that in the me too movement as well where people who were known sexual harassers but were great directors or great ceos you know they were sort of not investigated because they were so important for the company and it it it's a question of what do you think as a company or a university is more important mm. in the end these cases are going to come out and it's much more damaging for the university to to then have to admit that these allegations were not investigated. Mm. So in the end, I think it's much better for a university to immediately investigate and take action. But that's, yeah, you know, I think they a haven't. Lot, a lot of the responsibility for checking stuff is also put onto the peer review process. And if they say right. it's okay, well, probably okay. Well, I think peer reviewers also cannot see those things. So right. they're not the only ones who should check, I guess. Yeah, I hear that often in, in the response of an author where they say, oh, you know, you raised these concerns six years after our pa paper got published, but it was peer reviewed. Yeah. The journal didn't find anything wrong. So who are you to say that there's something wrong? The paper and the peer reviewers approved all our images. And that's just not an argument that uh, I, I will, you know, uh, be... Uh, happy with like no no I see these things I'm a specialist I look at these things in a very different way and I think there's a concern I don't care if your paper has been peer-reviewed by five people or ten people I see these problems they're very concerning problems and you know I don't care what the peer reviewers saw because peer reviewers like you said are not trained to find these no. things they might not they might not see problems like I look at them from a different angle and I see things that they probably they, maybe they could have seen, but not everybody can. And peer reviewers are also not paid. We do this work as volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're short on time. Uh, what can you expect from that? Like, like that's not only if you pay a person to do that work, then of course you expect quality. But um, unfortunately, the demands on peer reviewers are getting higher and higher. Papers are getting more complex. So the process of peer reviewing has has become very difficult. I. I cannot even peer review a paper anymore because they are so complex, these manuscripts, mm -hmm. and they, they would cost me <laughs> almost days to go over all the data. So I, I don't have that. Who has that time, right? Yep. And um, there's no benefit of doing it either. You don't get paid, you don't get fame, nope. you don't, you're anonymous. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, we know that there's also some uh, quite big cases where you even were in the news and everything that you uh, have been involved in. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, about those? If you want, of course. Yeah, of course. No, no, no topic is off limits. <laughs> uh, I think one of the cases that uh, 
got in the news a lot is a paper about hydroxychloroquine. And this was early in the pandemic, uh, March 2020. There was a paper published by a group in Marseille, France, that claimed that hydroxychloroquine could be used to treat uh, people with COVID-19. And that paper was just a very small paper, small group of, of patients. And uh, there were many problems, I thought, with that paper. So I wrote a blog post about it and I posted my comments also on, on Poppeer and on uh, uh, Archive or wherever it was published, the preprint. And uh, yeah, I found many flaws with that paper. And of course, the, the senior professor who I think might fit the, the profile I just uh, <laughs> described earlier, that senior professor did not like it that somebody criticized his paper and he called me all kinds of nasty words on Twitter in the French Senate. He was heard by the French Senate. Um, he, uh, after a while, he even uh, raised um, or filed a complaint against me and uh, with the French procureur, I'm not sure, I think it's sort of a police report. So he, he accused me of harassing him and of... Um, uh, blackmailing and extorting him, all kinds of nasty things, which I don't know where that came from. I think it was a misinterpretation of a tweet. And he uh, he wrote uh, yeah, several blog posts. He did several videos about me. Um, anyway, he's, he's, he's trying to discredit me, but he has not taken away a single concern that I have found because I started looking for more concerns in his paper and I found more <laughs> and more of his papers to be containing either images that had problems or lack of ethical approval um, or, well, all kinds of problems in his paper. So I think I posted around 80 of his papers on Papier with problems. And of course, he did not take that well. And so that, uh, the, the threat of the lawsuit was um, quite nasty. We can talk about that maybe, but um, he, I didn't give up and so I didn't go away. So I don't know what will happen. Maybe I'll be sued by him. And I hope I get some support from the scientific community because I think it's all frivolous. It's just a, you know, he's trying to silence me by threatening me with lawsuits. Uh, but I have received already a lot of outpour from the scientific community supporting my work and saying, you know, she's raising serious concerns. She's not insulting you. She's just raising concerns about your papers. Why do you threaten to sue her? Like give, mm -hmm. give her what she wants. Give her the original photos yeah. and lots and ethical approval. Uh, but instead, he's trying to sue me. And I think authors who do that have something to hide. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, he does not maybe have original blots. And so he, instead, he tries to attack the, the, the messenger, the whistleblower. And I think people who immediately attack the whistleblowers are just, you know, I, I will bite even deeper and I will look harder because there's something that they're trying to hide. So he's not going to. Silence me, uh, and I might be financially ruined trying to defend myself. But I, I feel somebody should take that risk because I will, I have stand, stood up to him where many other people have been silenced by his threats for lawsuits. But I, I will fight this till the final fight, and uh, yeah, I, I hope, of course, it will not come to a lawsuit because it's horrible and it will take away so many financial and emotional resources. But um, I, I will not be threatened uh, by him to raise critical questions about his research. Do you think he's more of an outlier, though, in terms of his response with lawsuits? Or do you, have you also encountered other people who are maybe not going to the lawsuit side yet, but are also nasty uh, to you? Or? Uh, a, a couple have, have been raising 
or sending vague threats or uh, I, ha I have received a letter of uh, sort of a cease and desist letter mm -hmm. where they, uh, a lawyer wrote me uh, a letter in an in FedEx envelope and it comes at your home and you're like, what is this? And uh, the, the lawyer asked me to take down a blog post and to take down tweets or else dot, dot, dot. It wasn't quite clear, but it was a veiled threat of a lawsuit. And I just wrote them back. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to tweet that you sent this letter to me. So I'm I'm doing the opposite of what, what they think I will do. Uh, and maybe that's very dumb of me from a legal point of view, but I, I rarely listen to advice. <laughs> so I did that and I never heard from them. So I don't know if I'll be served, but I think I had every right to to raise concerns about that group of papers. Um, and other uh, other authors have threatened to sue uh, and those were cases I was not involved in, but they have threatened to sue editors if they would um, retract a paper. There was a case in the social spider uh, field, uh, uh, a researcher, I'm not going to name names, but a researcher working on the social um, interactions of, of spiders. And they, uh, per another person found problems in their papers and people started to dig in and asking for, for, for these files. And found more and more problems. And so the, there were many re concerns raised and, and the author of all these papers threatened to sue the editors. And, and so they were very hesitant and they were very afraid and actually were not retracting those papers. But I think in the end, this is another case where it seems that that person had something to hide. There were many different concerns about his um, supplemental tables and <laughs> they were pretty clear that there, there were, you know, big concerns about them. Yeah. So it's not unique. It actually happens a lot. And especially in the US, of course, people love to sue each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a whole profession. <laughs> it's a rite of passage at this point there, I guess. And, yeah, and but so it is scary. Like, like it's mm -hmm. emotionally disturbing for me to, you know, have to deal with these mm -hmm. cases, obviously. I do think, though, when you publish a paper, you put it out in the public domain and other people are allowed to have an opinion about it. So how, of course. how would you? Yeah. But maybe that's just too Dutch thinking of me. To, uh, <laughs> to not well, I am, I'm very Dutch in the way I act because I think a lot of Americans would say, well, you're being threatened with a lawsuit. You have to shut up or like take down your tweets. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm very Dutch in raising concerns, even if it affects people who are in powerful position. I think that's a very Dutch thing. We, mm. we don't really accept authority that much. And and even the prime minister or the king should be open to to be criticized. And I think that's uh, a, an intrinsic part of Dutch culture that in the U.S. is a, it's a little bit less ingrained. So. Hmm. Yeah. so if someone would like to contribute in a similar way uh, as you do, uh, what tools or resources or how would you suggest that they get started that they can also help uh, spotting these uh, image duplications or uh, fraudulent papers? Well, I regularly post on Twitter examples of image problems under the hashtag image forensics. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can sort of train yourself <laughs> um, to see if you can spot the, the duplications as well. So you can earn an emoji award. Uh, my my Twitter account is currently in private mode because I'm being attacked by uh, mm. a lot of nasty groups. And so I uh, got a lot of hate. So I, I then switched my Twitter to private. But I have lots of followers already. So if you're there, you can see the sort of the challenges. 
So uh, not everybody can spot the duplications, but if you can, I would encourage you to, you know, look for papers in your own field and and you might not ever find one with problems. Uh, some papers just don't have images or uh, any other data that would immediately raise concerns. But if you do something, post it on pubpeer.com, which is a website where uh, all of us uh, secret uh, detectives uh, will post our concerns about papers and install the Pubpeer plugin, which is a little extension that will work in your browser. For example, if you have Chrome, you install the Chrome uh, extension for plug uh, for Pubpeer. And that means if you do a literature search and one of the papers that is on your screen, uh, the DOI has been uh, commented on in Pubpeer, you will see a green banner. So you can mm -hmm. see that that paper has received comments. Oh, that's pretty cool. But yeah, so I, I have uh, on my website, scienceintegritydigest.com. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of um, how-to guides. So what you should do if you see a paper with plagiarism, how some tools to, to look for plagiarism or to compare two papers with each other and, and you know, highlight the results. Um, some uh, image forensics tools that are freely available. Um, and some some that are not freely available, but the, those the ones I've worked with. And just in general, how to contact an editor, how to post on Papier. So uh, I get too many requests. I get lots of requests like, can you post this problem on Papier? And I get so many of them. I'm like, no, I cannot possibly do all these requests. So please post it yourself. Create mm -hmm. a Papier account. It's completely anonymously. I post under my full name, but if you are a junior researcher, I would not recommend that. It's unfortunately not very um, good for your career. You, you have to have a lot of stability in your life because a lot of people, if you criticize other people's papers, you're, you know, you could be ending getting in trouble. So I wish it was different, but that's just the reality. So post anonymously, but keep it very polite and objective. We we are scientists. We can do this, but. Don't make any accusations. Mm. Or if you suspect any of your persons in your environment to do fraud, if you decide to go to your research integrity officer, which most universities or probably all in the, in the, in, in Europe will have, uh, post them or uh, raise these concerns objectively. Again, do not make accusations. Try to not become too emotionally. It's very hard if you're very directly involved, but keep it to the stick to the facts like mm -hmm. you know and 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 that will that will yeah bring you the farthest but yeah help me by by doing a lot of this yourself i cannot i'm not superwoman i cannot take on all the problems in the world but i hope that others are inspired with what i do and 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 do their own things there's so many papers out there i cannot possibly screen them myself do you ever regret doing it so publicly because also on social media you of course have quite a few people Spreading hate. Do you, yes. do, you, do you regret doing it on your no, full name? No, or? absolutely not. I'm 100% okay. behind my own choices. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, occasionally I will tweet something and I'm like, eh, that was probably not a very good tweet. So I'll delete the tweet. But um, yeah, that's that's rare. Like I, I like I feel I'm in a in a privileged position. Obviously, I'm, you know, I've. Uh, I don't have to worry about my career. Um, I'm in a financial stable position. I get lots of support through Patreon and consulting work. So I have a stable income. I can do this work without having a boss. And I absolutely do not regret it. I guess it also helps that it, you're not biased towards anything in that sense, right? Like if you had to worry about your career, it's like, maybe I can, you know, 
maybe it's it's analyzed in a certain way or presented mm-hmm. a certain way, but you have no biases in that regard either, I guess. No yeah, I have no no biases, yeah. uh, like no, uh, yeah, specific. Uh, most importantly, I don't have a boss who tells yeah. me what <laughs> not to do. Because if you're, you can imagine if you are a professor or some group leader and one of your employees is criticizing one of your coworkers, like that usually doesn't go over well. Mm. And, and usually the junior person then will be told like, don't rock the boat. Like we, you know, don't, don't be so hateful. Uh, don't you know focus on your work so I've been told that several times um, so I <laughs> I uh, decided at some point I, I can only do this work really well by quitting my job and hoping to make it as a consultant which I can do now so that's uh, you know but but yeah it, it helps to be a little bit at a point a little bit more senior in your career to do this. Mm-hmm. Do you think the feedback from the scientific community has been positive? For the most part, except for those few exceptions, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do get a lot of hate, but the hate mostly comes from anonymous trolls, either from uh. friends, from that uh, French professor. I'm also having um, a lot of, uh, you know, unkind messages from a group of investors who invested in a company called Cassava Sciences, uh, that where the stock jumped because some of their papers have images of concern, and I agreed with that. And so a lot of hate is sending my my direction mainly from people who are not scientists, but from the scientific community, I have re- received a lot of support. So when I was threatened with that lawsuit by the Marseille professor, uh, there were several petitions started by scientists and people signed those petitions to support me. Mm-hmm. And that has meant a lot because it knows, I know I'm not alone. I'm supported by, by scientists um, and I'm hated by trolls, but I think that's a a decent balance <laughs> if it was the other way around it would not be good right <laughs> yes yeah it's of course always i would say also a fear of everybody who's doing any type of science communication or anything online you always are afraid of those those trolls coming for you but uh, i'm i'm really glad that you also get a lot of support because it's really important work that you do yeah but yeah like i said the trolls are sometimes there are you know waves of trolls coming at me sometimes so i <laughs> I, I shut my Twitter down, so I'm currently in private mode. Um, but I will accept new followers as long as they're scientists. If they are, you know, uh, John Doe, uh, one, two, three, four, five, I'm not going to follow them. Uh, mm-hmm. or they, I'm not going to let them in right now. But it's, um, yeah, I still accept new followers or follower requests. But uh, I, I mainly focus, put something in your bio, folks. Like if it's just a name, I don't really, cannot really judge if I, want you to follow me or not or if i want to follow you do a little so if 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 your bio has something like i'm a scientist or i'm interested like i work in a library or i'm interested in science like i'll accept you but if it's there's if the bio is empty i'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna be very tempted to follow you looks like a troll <laughs> it looks like a troll exactly yeah. like of course a lot of trolls would love to see what i'm tweeting now i'm i'm just tweeting image forensics things and uh, nice art that i like and a salad that I made yesterday. So I tweet about <laughs> those things. <laughs> I yes. try to remain, you know, polite and it's hard sometimes, but uh, I try not to call out any particular persons unless it's a very severe troll making a very nasty comment anonymously. I feel I have every right to retweet that mm. or to make a screenshot because it's I'm not personally attacking a person. It's, it's a troll who chose to be anonymously, so I don't know who they are. And you cannot find that out. But I do feel that to- those tweets need to be reported. And 
Uh, unfortunately, I don't know what Twitter is, the yeah. Twitter's future is going to be. We'll see well, how it uh, it's been an interesting how it works out. Weeks. <laughs> yeah. We'll okay. see. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We learned a lot, of and course. hopefully our listeners too. Uh, we can, of course, really recommend uh, our listeners to follow you on Twitter. Uh, your Twitter handle is at Microbiome Digest, if I looked it up correctly. Microbiome Digest, without the E's, yeah. So it's, uh, or just search for Elizabeth Big. I do mm -hmm. have a rescue account that is also called Elizabeth Big, uh, which uh, you cannot follow. That's completely private, but um, Microbiome Digest is my handle, or search for Elizabeth Big. Yes. And uh, your tweets are a lot of fun to follow. A lot about I image so. tempering, and uh, they're very interesting, eye-opening, and also quite a bit of fun uh, to the yes. tempering. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not the best at it, but sometimes I do see them. <laughs> um, do you have any other websites or social media that you would like to share with our audience so that they can find you? I have scienceintegritydigest.com. That's my blog. I don't blog a lot, but there's a, there's a couple of... Um, I have my financial uh, disclosures there, if you are interested in how I make my money. Um, I have uh, some guidelines on how to report papers or detect plagiarism, for example. Um, so that's Science Integrity Digest is my blog. I have from my previous career in microbiology, I have microbiomedigest.com, um, which is a website that is currently run by a small team, too small, <laughs> of volunteers. Uh, that's about papers in the microbiology or microbiome space. Mm -hmm. So if you're... Uh, a microbiologist interested in that i would recommend that blog okay and you can always find us on the struggling and on all social media jane on which ones have do we have <laughs> twitter linkedin facebook instagram and now also mastodon <laughs> yes <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, everywhere of course as the struggling scientist uh thank you so much for listening and see you all next time bye bye, bye.